What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the second episode of First Money In. Uh, on this week's episode, we talk about Jay-Z and Nas and how they are making real business moves. Chess, not checkers. We're also talking about this stimulus package that's coming out. Is it too big? Is it too little? How impactful is it going to be? And then the third thing we talk about are the markets. Should you be buying right now? Should you be getting into other asset classes? How do we think about it? And again, make sure you stay all the way to the end where we talk about winners, losers, and content. Now into the podcast. Welcome back to the First Money In podcast the podcast for knowledge seekers and risk takers. Every other week, we come together to explore recent events in the world of startups, finance, politics, and the business world around us. I'm your host, Jonathan Lacoste, and this week we're gonna be testing out some new nicknames. So I'm Jonathan, AKA the Spaceman. I'm joined by my two fantastic co-hosts, Muhan Jung, AKA the Operative. He's organized, strategic, and always two steps ahead. And we're also joined by Brandon Smooth Jazz Bryant, cool, calm, and collected as he dominates the world of venture capital, plus his silky smooth voice should be on the call map. So not sure if those nicknames will last until next week, but uh, welcome, Muhan and Brandon. How are you guys doing? What's good, man? These these are dope. We did not know what those were going to be called, so appreciate those. I think COO, I just still want to <laughs> put that for Muhan. Just Mr. COO. <laughs> you guys flatter me. I mean, I wish I could level up to Smoothie Jazz and Spaceman one day. I feel like those are the real, you know, you guys are living the dream and I'm just like cleaning the ship. But uh, here we are. <laughs> There's a pretty good movie called The Operative, I'm pretty sure. So you'll have to check mm -hmm. that out. Mm, got you, got you. But jumping into everything, uh, first of all, thanks to everyone for the fantastic feedback from the first episode. I think we were all pretty genuinely blown away. Uh, you know, we launched this pretty quickly and uh, we've been really excited by the feedback um, so please keep it coming uh, if you want to follow us on Spotify or if you want to follow the channel more in depth uh, feel free to go to firstmoneyin.co.co or feel free to search for the first money in podcast on Substack uh, you'll get an update every time a new episode launches with some awesome gifts and just a brief summary of what we're going to be talking about and you'll also get a head heads up on a future secret guests and sneak appearances that we will be having. So with that, let's jump in, gentlemen. We have a lot to cover this week, uh, and I'm really excited to get through it all with you. Brandon, I'll turn it over to you first because it sounds like a particular rapper and businessman had a particularly good past week here. <laughs> yes, particularly. Uh, I think hip-hop in general has had a pretty great 2021 from a business perspective. I think Folks like Nas and, and Jay-Z are seeing some of the investments that they made in tech startups over the last five to seven years are having major uh, liquidity events. And even in a recent article, I was looking at if there was other folks in the space too. Snoop Dogg it came up with uh, one of his uh, investments in Klarna that is about to be valued wow. at like 11 plus billion dollars in so a lot of people in hip hop are, are winning this year. We could start with Nas first and go to Jay-Z. Uh, from a Nas perspective, he's been making personal investments and also investments through Queensbridge Ventures. Um, he's invested in everything, man. Dropbox, Ring, Parachute, SeatGeek, Robinhood, uh, Casper, PillPack, and most notably, and most recently coming up uh, to for everyone to, to look at is Coinbase, which is... Um, estimated to IPO at a hundred billion plus dollars. And folks are saying Nas has probably invested anywhere between a hundred thousand to maybe a million plus. And he's minimum supposed to be getting at least nine figures back from just this one investment. Uh, so he's, he's playing chess, not checkers. And actually some of the folks from, from Queensbridge Ventures are, uh, friends of the pod. That's the first time we get to say friends of the pod. Uh, but I know uh, Anand and, and D from Queensbridge, and they, they had a quick story on their podcast talking about Ben Horowitz uh, trying to invest uh, from Andreessen 16 into Coinbase and how the founder of Coinbase really liked Nas. So Ben flew Nas out to a cookout on the PJ to close the deal and then let Nas invest. 
myth, wow. legend, truth, who knows? Wow. Regardless, everyone wants to be like Nas. Everyone wants to connect with Ben Horowitz. Um, pivoting to Jay-Z, the last four weeks or so for this guy, been incredible, right? He's an investor in Oatly, the oat milk company that's IPOing at 10 plus billion dollars. So uh, shout out to you in, in, in drinking healthy, I guess. <laughs> he also sold 50% of Ace of Spades, which is uh, his champagne company uh, to LVMH for 250 plus million dollars, which I assume he's going to make way more than that now that they're partnering with LVMH through their distribution. And then he just sold his majority stake of title uh, to Jack Dorsey and Square, and he's going to be joining the, the board as well. So I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. Uh, you are very correct, Jay-Z. We appreciate you. I think NetNet, super happy to have folks like Nas and Jay-Z and Snoop Dogg, et cetera, um, showing that you can be businessmen um, for the diverse community. And um, it's just a proud moment. And one last thing I'll say, I, I put out a tweet about all the Jay-Z stats and it went viral. It had 325 wow. plus retweets in 24 hours. And I think that he's he's gonna have a larger impact than anyone can ever kind of quantify right now. Uh, but I'll, I'll hand it over to the guys to see what you guys think about it. Um, so yes, on that topic of Jay-Z uh, making money, NFTs and the Square stuff, it was so exciting to see, I, I think the impact that a superstar influencer with a cult of personality can have on something as boring as champagne. My readers constantly tease me all the time. Like I never touch anything that's not really software or marketplaces, but here's Jay-Z raking in hundreds of millions of dollars just because he's Jay-Z <laughs> added to, you know, a really, really boring business. And so seeing that, and then on the other side of kind of like the, you know, past and future spectrum, he's teaming up with Spotify potentially, uh, not Spotify, sorry, with a square to potentially make the future of music with NFTs. Like I, I know that was another topic that we wanted to cover, but the fact that that market is booming and that Jay-Z gets to play both sides, right? He, is, he has one foot profiting strictly from the old world and one foot strictly profiting from the new world um, is just really, really inspirational, honestly. Well, I think one thing that's not new here are celebrity endorsements of alcohol brands, right? Um, just thinking of, of recently, uh, one's off the top of my head, LeBron James has his Lobos Tequila and Mezcal. Uh, Ryan Reynolds uh, was a co-owner and a spokesperson for Aviation Gin, which had a couple of pretty viral uh, commercials and ads. And even Sarah Jessica Parker has a, a rosé uh, called Invivio X. What I think is really interesting, though, is how these celebrities and athletes and personalities are engaging with these brands or starting these companies. In, in the old traditional model of advertising and marketing, this would have been a sponsorship play. They would have been given a cash payment, maybe one time or, or a retainer fee. But now they have an ownership stake. They have an equity stake. They have an asset that they can own. And obviously, it appreciates in value substantially. And Brandon, I don't know about you, but the first one that culturally really came to mind for me was when LeBron did that Beats by Dre deal. When they mm -hmm. approached him right before the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, and instead of cashing a check, he took an ownership stake. And he gave Beats by Dre to every player on the NBA, uh, team, uh, team USA NBA, uh, basketball team. And it became a cultural moment. And so I think what's really interesting here is, yes, Jay-Z uh, launching a champagne brand and selling it for hundreds of millions of dollars. Wildly impressive, especially given that this is his third big win in just a matter of weeks. But it's not new. But I think the bigger shift here from a paradigm standpoint is that celebrities and athletes are taking an ownership stake um, as opposed to kind of the traditional influencer marketing model. Yeah. And, and I agree. I mean, the future is ownership, right? When you when I think about like 50 cent and vitamin water, that could have been one that goes back to your um, as far as your LeBron scenario. Then you think about uh, George Clooney and Casamigos and how mm -hmm. 700 million bought out and then they can earn 300 plus million in cash as long as they hit some of their uh, their earn out metrics. And there was someone else off the top of my head that I couldn't remember. Oh, it was Shaq with Ring. So Shaq wanted to get security for his house. It was gonna cost thousands of dollars. And then he found out about Ring and he ended up getting connected with the founder of Ring and kind of bought in as an investor. So I think- wow. It's just a future and it seems as though it's 
more of these folks building business teams around them, not only just an agent or a lawyer or accountant, but it's uh, folks who they've done multiple deals with to lever or leverage their own brand to get into deals where they have <laughs> previously no business being in there. I <laughs> mean, um, even The Rock is doing tequila now too, right? Yeah. So um, I think it's a good opportunity for folks to kind of level up. Everyone's doing alcohol brand. Everyone's doing something in skincare. Everyone's doing something in um, healthy eating, et cetera. And uh, I guess it's just another level in the game for people to monetize off their likeness. Um, I'm not mad at it at all. I had one idea that I wanted to throw out to you guys as we were preparing for the pod and also maybe transition to the really exciting potential that Jay-Z's title has now that it's kind of partnering up with Jack Dorsey and Square. Because I think as technologists and entrepreneurs amongst the three of us, we're all really excited about that deal in particular, um, mm -hmm. maybe even more so than the uh, LVMH champagne deal. So one thought I had was a lot of the time these assets and these investments come down to access. Jay-Z, LeBron, Nas have access. They have connections and certainly a network that the average investor doesn't have, especially a lot of the time in black and brown communities or underserved communities of, you know, uh, of, of minorities or even just from a gender standpoint. One thing that I think could be interesting is if several of these uh, celebrity investors, I'll call them, in during their early stage deal flow, opened up part of what they were going to participate in as part of a crowdfunding play to underserved investors. Yes, I know there's some regulation around what is an accredited investor and what isn't. And, you know, there are certain rules on uh, crowdfunding platforms, etc. But I think it would be really cool if the next time Jay-Z invests 10, 20, 30 million into a business early on, what if he opens a few million dollars up for the average investor, the retail investor, uh, to participate in that and get a little bit of share of the ride on the way up? And I think what could be so cool is Imagine if now Square is the financial backbone for that opportunity. If you're investing on Cash App or Square now has a bank that you can pull out a loan and, and they're the ones that you know your investment is, is held in their bank account. So I know I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but that was an idea that I had that I thought maybe Jay-Z would be the right type of personality to spearhead. And the title Square financial arrangement just makes so much sense uh, as potentially the financial backbone for something like that, too. You hit it right on the nose, man. I mean, for influential people like that to democratize the opportunity for people who look like them to participate in the upside of this new industrial revolution that's going on online and in software and tech and in spaces that people of color and women don't necessarily have the access to or, or education around is, I think it's going to be huge. And I think it's also something that Jack Dorsey um, has as like as an ethos is to really kind of help these underrepresented communities. So I'm definitely pumped about that. TBD, how it gets done. Mm -hmm. um, we'll see maybe uh, someone like Jack and, and Jay-Z can push for legal opportunities to kind of deregulate that and make it in favor of the, the retail investor, but TBD there. But if there was anyone to do it, it would definitely be those guys. Uh, I'd be remiss, you know, just kind of given that my day job now is all about equity crowdfunding. Um, to say that there's been some very exciting up and coming uh, portfolio managers who previously before would not have been able to close funds from traditional. So I think the news that has really been buzzing around the equity uh, crowdfunding community is Arlen Hamilton with her backstage capital for $1 million. And that was mm -hmm. doing exactly what you were saying, Jonathan. Now, I am very, very, it's I funny, I, I joke all the time that um, <laughs> there's only so many sports teams the rich people can buy. And so starting a VC <laughs> fund is like the next best thing now, you know, <laughs> that's funny. And so, and so I, I definitely see it trending that way. And whether it's coming from the, the, the portfolio manager side in terms of backing more diversity there and really opening up those channels there, or it's coming from um, the deal flow side, right? Uh, you can speak better to this than me, Brandon, but uh, one of a GP friend of mine, when I was talking with him about work and such, he was like, you know, honestly, a good deal kind of looks pretty obvious. It's not that hard. It's all about access. It's all about deal flow. Can you get me that deal flow? And, and you know, that's, that's, that's the reason I'm not naming this individual. I don't want to make him uh, re responsible, but that checks out to me, 
right? It checks out to me that it's, it is access at every single level. So is it access to the fund manager? Is it access to the deal? Where are you going to see that innovation happen? Um, probably the answer is all of it. And sorry, one last thing. Um, in mid-March, you're going to see the equity crowdfunding limits go from $1 million to $5 million. I just mm. think it's going to be an insane explosion of creativity because $5 million is real money. So talking about access, one of the things that I wanted to explore with both of you was with this title and square tie up now and partnership. I think, you know, corporate M&A, a lot of the time you can kind of see the vision immediately. This is one that I think forced a lot of people to pause and get really creative, which is one of the things that I love about it. So two, two or three weeks ago, Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z announced that they were doing um, a, a fund, a big donation uh, together. I think it was about $24 million that they were both putting in uh, to any entrepreneurs and small businesses in Africa and India um, that were investing or creating Bitcoin uh, technologies. And I thought that was really interesting, but it kind of passed through. And so to see this second collaboration on a much deeper level between Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z really got me thinking that there might be a bigger vision behind you know, what this opportunity is, because Square was not something that you thought would get into the streaming uh, world. But upon reflection, and Muhan, to your point around, this is all about access from the investing side about deal flow. For creators and artists, I think what Title has the opportunity to do for Square is to expand where their financial products are supporting. Mm -hmm. They were primarily focused on small business owners. And I think if you think about title as a microcosm for the small business creator or influencer or artist in the digital economy, uh, it becomes really, really interesting. I saw a Twitter thread that I, I want to share with both of you that essentially made the argument that record labels in the traditional way are just an artist's bank. Right. In, in some in some form or fashion, they provide an upfront loan or advance to the artist based on uh, a, a, the creation of certain goods and services. Um, and then there's a rev share in, in, a, in a time uh, payback period. What if Square, through its new bank, through its investing products, through its financial services, became the new recording label of the modern day for digital creators or for artists on title? I don't know exactly where this goes, but I think it's really, really fascinating. And I think NFTs is a natural place that the three of us, I'm sure, would jump to in terms of if you create a song, you could put that song on the blockchain and have individual you know, fans own a piece of it and, and you could participate in that monetization and that marketplace uh, of exchange. I think that's really interesting. But I think it goes beyond that too. You know, Square could create a Patreon or an OnlyFans type subscription service. There's, with Jack Dorsey also running Twitter, maybe there's a sync up between Twitter and Tidal. I'm really, really excited to see where this M&A goes. Um, it's one of the few that, I was very surprised by, but I'm extremely excited to see where it goes from here. You know, and I know we've been we've been digging in here, so we probably will move on after mm -hmm. this. But I I wasn't surprised that it was happening just because of how much uh, Jay and Jack have been hanging out in the <laughs> Hamptons together and walking around and just kicking kicking it. And are you there Jay in the Hamptons with them, Brian? <laughs> Brandon, I haven't been uh, I haven't been introduced to that one yet. <laughs> we don't got access yet. I, you know, I I've mostly through TMZ, uh, <laughs> but seeing how they've been vibing out and on the same boats and yachts and enjoying uh, time at each other's house. Like I knew something was going on, just like um, LVMH, the owner of LVMH, his son has been hanging out with Jay-Z a lot more. So I think it was obvious, like when people come and break bread with Jay-Z at his house in the Hamptons or his house in LA, they're looking to do um, a deal. And, and JL actually had the same point around uh, Square potentially being a bank for um, mm -hmm. his artists in the future. And I, I thought of it more as a neo bank. So you, you described how um, Interscope and all these other record companies are basically regular banks. So you can call those your Bank of America's uh, your chases, et cetera. And then Square can now be this neo bank where they have all these financial tools like Bank Novo or Ally Bank or all these other banks where they're giving all these really interesting um, new financial products. They're cutting out all the fees and giving a lion's share of opportunity to the new folks who are going to uh, sign up. So I think he did that already for all the retailers and merchants through the POS system of Square, he now wants to do that through all the, the artists and folks and creators um, who are coming through that, that music industry. So I think it's gonna be super sick 
And then having Jay-Z on there gives you an extra smell test approval having him on your board. So pumped about that. Uh, I know we are moving on to talk a little bit about the stimulus, the new stimulus plan or the STEMI as it's called on Twitter. Uh, JL, feel free to kick us off. <laughs> yeah, speaking of big things to come here. So uh, certainly all of us have been aware and uh, we're expecting once uh, President Biden won the election and uh, especially with the Georgia Senate runoff earlier this year in January, once the Democrats won both of those seats, creating a 50-50 tie in the Senate with, with Kamala, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris breaking that tie, it was kind of expected that we would get a big stimulus package. And so there's been a lot of talk about it. And I kind of want to break down in, in Brandon style, as he did on the last pod of the Texas humanitarian crisis, just what exactly is in the stimulus package, because it's changed a lot. As we record this, it is still being negotiated in the Senate. It has passed the House, and the Senate version is a little bit different already than the House version. But with everything else, a lot of the folks in the mainstream media or folks with an agenda will try to spin this in one way or another. And so we want to make sure that you get the cold, hard facts about what is actually included. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about what we think about that. So when you think about the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, there is a lot that is in that. There, there's, there's no debate about that. I like to think about it, and I categorized it into five broad categories. The first is around unemployment benefits. So it extends weekly unemployment benefits into the fall. That was something that previously was ending early this spring. The second category is stimulus checks. That's what's gotten the most attention for the majority of Americans um, that qualified for the previous stimulus check. You'll still be getting another stimulus check of $1,400 this time. So plus the 600 you got in December for a total of $2,000. They do have a graduated scale though. So there's about 2% of people that won't be receiving checks this time. And those are generally for higher income earners uh, on the spectrum, single or married uh, couples that are, are jointly filing their taxes together. The third category is aid to states and local governments. So throughout the pandemic, 26 states have had budget shortfalls due to unexpected pandemic expenses. And at the same time, major tax revenue declines because people are spending less, they're making less money, or they're moving out of state. And so there's a lot of aid that's targeted right now towards uh, state and local governments helping them continue to pay to respond to the pandemic. But also a major portion of that funding goes to uh, education expenses, helping schools reopen, uh, making sure they have uh, you know testing and, and the right PPE and, and for schools and uh, socially distance uh, infrastructure. So there's a lot of funding targeted towards that. The fourth category is pandemic response. So funding to pay for PPE, testing and tracing to reopen schools, uh, vaccine distribution, vaccine sites, et cetera. And the fifth one is minimum wage. There's been a lot of talk in the media around, you know, Democrats pushing for this $15 an hour minimum wage uh, that rolls out over the next five years. Uh, it's unclear if that's actually going to be included in the final bill. Uh, as of recording just last night, eight Democratic senators voted against that uh, being included in the Senate version. So it's unclear if that'll actually be included or not, but it did pass the House version. And then lastly, there's a bunch of bonus miscellaneous stuff. I think this is one of the things that we'll talk about in just a second. But, you know, Congress can't pass a bill without a lot of extra fun stuff included. So, you know, there's an expanded employee retention tax credit. There's student loan relief and tax credits. Uh, there's, you know, uh, $200 million, I believe, for Amtrak funding. There's a bunch of pork barrel stuff and special interest stuff that's included in this bill. Um, but let's pause there. Those are the five main categories for the stimulus. So, Muhan, let me pass it over to you. What do you like about how Congress put together this bill? Do you think anything's missing? Do you think the priorities are right? Do you think it's too much? Really curious to get your thoughts. Jonathan, um, that was super helpful. And I just want to quickly recap the five. So from what I heard you say, that was a lot. Thank you for that rundown. Uh, one is for unemployment. Two is for cash stimulus. Three is for uh, state and um, state help. Four is for PPE and healthcare, and then five is $15 minimum wage. Did I get the five kind of top line headlines down? Yeah, exactly. Amazing. Thank you. Um, so yeah, it's it's been super, super fascinating to watch what has been going on in our political scene from the national um, spotlight. And generally speaking, I am 100% in alignment uh, in that you can't go too big on this thing, right? Like we all grew up in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis and like, to just say it very bluntly, I don't think anyone my age can with a straight face ever say that we really recovered from 2008 until like the late 2010s. I do not know a single person who feels that way. And so 
kind of reading from it and um and listening to the various you know budget reconciliation and like oh how hardline are they gonna go um the general spirit of okay money is fungible you don't want to be irresponsible with it but when it's time to deploy capital you deploy capital <laughs> and then once you get the valuable things settled you figure out how to pay for it um and i do you know i, I will say kind of just from my background historically i do not think america has historically been great at the reckoning of like how do we pay for it but still like that doesn't mean you don't like put out the fire and then you solve that problem later um whether it's through you know i think there's been um, a lot of very um ambitious but plausible plans like wealth tax inheritance tax right like uh kind of one of the favorites that i've grafted onto is this idea of like value-added tax the one thing that i feel i have mixed feelings about is the 15 dollars minimum wage um, and that's not because i don't like the spirit of it uh, the realities are that when I think of a small business, a restaurant, or someone who is uh, actually hiring people, right? Like my business does not hire people. It, it, it presents a burden to that entrepreneur that is going to have very mixed incentives uh, for the worker, for the employee, and for the people who frequent that um, uh, establishment. And so I, I you know, I, I'm certainly not going to say that that is... Um, irredeemable from the bill but that's probably the one thing that i have uh that i'm i'm anxious to see what the feedback is going to be about um and the implications yeah about you, Brandon? jumping in here as i think about the stimulus package overall i think it's a good start right like i i like the focus of covid19 containment and vaccination and local government support uh, I think we need as many hands on deck as possible to get our Fauci ouchies, if you know what I mean, um, <laughs> and, and having capital that goes towards uh, reopening schools and mental health. Um, really like that. But I think also what goes into there that people might not be talking about is that there's going to be a lot of folks who are not going to get vaccinated, but they are still planning to go about everyday life very similarly and just be in the thick of it. They, they plan to be at sports games. They plan to be at movie theaters. They plan to jump on planes. And who knows if the virus can mutate over time. And so that's, that's just like, I'm glad that there's capital going towards, towards that. And then secondly, I feel like a lion's share is going towards families. And then also um, like those who have been like financially uh, vulnerable. Uh, I think it's it is smart that we're starting to uh, fine tune the qualifications of who can get a stimulus check. I think I was part of the original stimulus check that came out, which I was very happy about, but I don't think I'm one of the people who are top of the list who should be getting it. So I'm, I'm glad that they're refining the qualifications there. And then um, I think the larger thing to think about here is the pandemic in itself. Like we've kind of been in this for almost an entire year now. And a lot of people have been saying that the every month that we're in the pandemic, it might take us three months to get out of it. So I would assume that even post this stimulus that there's a lot more to come. We'll probably have one or two, maybe something else between now and 2024, 2025, because we're gonna keep needing that kind of like boost to um, kind of close the gap or at least keep it at what it is right now for um, the underrepresented folks who, don't have access to 401ks, who don't have access to the the stock markets and benefits and healthcare, like we're still going to have to support those folks and get them back on um, the right two feet. So I think this is just a, a very good start, but there's a lot more to come. Yeah, I think we would all agree that if the stimulus is targeted to those who really need it, then it has done its job and it should be as targeted as possible whether those are two workers that have been particularly impacted uh, by certain industries, restaurants, small business owners, travel, hospitality, etc. If you've been impacted, you should receive the most amount of stimulus, whether that's through weekly uh, unemployment benefits or whether that's through a direct stimulus check, uh, something along those lines. I think the question becomes, you know, have we gone too big? I think if you're looking at it from a black and white standpoint, I would say that this is certainly necessary. And the Brookings Institute did a really interesting macroeconomic study where they essentially showed that by pumping in $1.9 trillion into the economy, we will reach uh, pre-pandemic levels at, at, from a U.S. economy standpoint by Q3 this year in 2021, compared to if we did nothing, it would take until early 2024. 
So from that standpoint, I think we would all agree, yes, something should be done. Now, the question really comes down to, is the government being as efficient as possible with the spend with their spending in this in this budget? And have we prioritized the right things? And one thing that I'm starting to uh, be a little concerned about is that the spending is targeted like this package would have been amazing nine months ago. Obviously, the government looked very different nine months ago in terms of who was running it and what the, the share of congressional seats was. So that's neither here nor there. But that being said, there's a lot of funding that's being targeted towards, you know, COVID testing uh, centers and testing and tracing. And those are things that would have been amazing six to 12 months ago. At this point, I think all of the focus needs to be on vaccination access, vaccination equality for underrepresented communities, for rural communities. Everyone who wants a vaccine should be able to get it as quickly as possible. President Biden's done an amazing job of working with the private sector, J&J and Merck in particular, uh, typically competitors, to increase production through the Defense Production Act so that we will have enough doses for every single American by the end of May. I think we should be transitioning a lot of the funding towards, you know, federal uh, sites for vaccination, you know, working with the National Guard, whatever amount of resources is needed to get schools back open, children in schools five days a week so that parents can go back to work. Everyone has access to a vaccine. You don't have to wait months and months and months for scheduling it and trying to find, you know, a time slot in the middle of the night. That's what's most important, in my opinion. And I'm just slightly concerned that some of the stimulus is being uh, spent in a way that will prolong the pandemic uh, hangover, if that makes sense, right? In a world where, you know, if once you get your vaccine, you can go to sports games, you can travel again, you can, you know, there's no risk, you don't need to stay inside 24 hours, seven days a week. If you have your vaccine, you should be safe. And uh, just slightly concerned that some of the stimulus is uh, pointed in a direction that won't be as productive or effective uh, as, you know, certainly going all in on vaccines, as an example. Got it. No, I mean, Jonathan, I think those are those are great points. I was just catching up with a friend of mine yesterday who is um, a biomedical engineer by training. And uh, I don't know if you guys follow Balaji Srinivasan. He's former CTO of Coinbase. Mm-hmm. He predicted the he predicted the pandemic um, would decimate America like months before anyone was. And it was a classic like smart dude with very reasonable, probably like anti-institutional leanings predicting calamity and then everyone ignores him and then he ends up being right so to say that uh just on on one thing that you mentioned that i see what you mean and i however i guess i do also see the more conservative argument which is that uh in terms of everyone getting vaccinated by may sounds plausible sounds great uh what i have heard is that even if you are vaccinated we do not know if you are a carrier and then similarly going further than that the idea of the rapid mutation of different strains and how effective the vaccines will be in continuing to prevent all the future ones, right? So I I agree with you. Again, um, I'm not, uh, I I can appreciate the effectiveness argument of what you are saying. I can also see from the people who uh, did not go big enough the first time in terms of testing and tracing and prevention, where they're saying like, okay, yeah, we're going to, you know, waste a few billion dollars, a few hundreds of billions of dollars, maybe on prevention, but then actually, there is reason to believe that there is a concern, uh, even if it's a tail risk concern, but still a concern that we wouldn't want to then have to put ourselves into a position where, you know, some new string comes out, we didn't invest in testing. <laughs> and then now we have to pass <laughs> another $4 trillion bill because it all, it, it, it's, it's all decision making under ambiguity. So I don't, I don't disagree with the, the spirit of what you're saying at all. I have been uh, exposed to more from like the medical and the very, very doomsday scenario population. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it seems like both of you guys, right? There's going to be, there's probably some, You're. it's almost like they're paying down debt, bad uh, social debt from Trump just not doing these things some nine months ago, and they just want to take care of the people who feel like they've been mistaken care of and left out and orphaned, if you will. So I think some of that is uh, where the bill is going. But to Muhan's point, like, there's probably a future where there are a ton of unknowns and us putting a little capital there, understanding research, having prepared resources and processes in place is just a, it's a good value add to have, maybe not the top priority, but since we're throwing all these pork barrels into the entire uh, bill, why not actually have some precautionary things for not necessarily just this 
uh, a mutation of this disease, but maybe one in the future. So I think that could just also be them playing um, into the future and also it could be a play for uh, political opportunities uh, for the next election as well. So there's there's just so many things that you can, <laughs> so many ways you can go uh, with this stimulus package. And I think net net, we're gonna have multiple more of these. So it's not even, we'll, we'll have another conversation about this in the next six to 18 months anyways. Yeah, I think my closing thought on this is my hope is that we at, at the federal government as a country focus on ending the pandemic and truly getting back to a world where, you know, we've already missed our opportunity to eliminate COVID. I personally believe that that is unrealistic. And the, the medical experts and the epidemiologists have said that COVID will be kind of like the seasonal flu where it will, you know, come come and go through through different seasons. And for context here, from a global standpoint, we can't produce as, as, as a human species, we can't produce enough doses of the vaccine to vaccinate all 7.5 billion people on Earth until the end of 2024. So it's going to take several years. So even though everyone in the U.S. will have access uh, in early, uh, you know, in early May and, and June timeframe uh, to do the entire global population will take several years. And whether there are advancements and that gets moved to 2023, who knows? But I think the broader point is we're going to be living in a world where COVID exists. But what is the zero sum game? You know, at what point if you are immune to COVID in its known variants through the vaccination, why should your ability to go to a restaurant with others who have been vaccinated, go to a sports game with others who have been vaccinated, be limited by those who have decided not to take the vaccine? And I think that's going to be the really interesting double edged sword that individuals and governments will have to grapple with. And my only hope is that the government continues to focus on vaccinating as many people as possible and not enabling folks who want to live in an anti-vax world mm. that causes us to have these restrictions and lockdowns go on for the next few years. I think that's more where the perspective is coming from. Yeah, I totally agree on that. That's a fantastic point. Like I have family members who believe in uh, conspiracies, if you will, of how if you create these kind of uh, vaccine passports, I know we might chat about that a little later, um, it's just going to lead to a, a step of the government taking over and controlling us. And it's one society, all these jazzy things. And I guess, yeah, like, let's just not go down that, um, that crazy rabbit hole. And hopefully the government doesn't support those folks a, as much. And I, I hope that we can just have open conversations to, uh, <laughs> to move things forward and just stay positive and understand my viewpoint. The government's not even smart enough to <laughs> institutional like, I, I, failures I really everywhere i was telling my family member i was like the government is not even smart enough to have a one world order and control all of us <laughs> if anything there is an infiltrator who hacks the government and takes over that's what i'm worried about in the future uh but let's just say the the government officials are not necessarily there and then again federal versus state like states want to do all the things that they want to do on their own terms, you know, Texas, Mississippi, et cetera. Mm. So even if someone did take over the government, I still think uh, the state and local officials are going to be putting up um, guardrails, if you will. But uh, no, we uh, went a little bit over on this one, but uh, we'll talk about kind of the markets and what's been going up, up, down, around town in the markets. <laughs> Muhan, please take it away. Gentlemen. Talk about a talk about a takeover, by the way. I wish exactly. I could have taken over the markets. <laughs> I want to eminent domain the entire stock market, right? As it's all going down. So gentlemen, um, perhaps not a surprise to you or to any of our readers, but the last two weeks have been uh, quite have been quite a phenomenon. So let's start with uh, updates since our last podcast uh, went published. So in our last podcast, um, I believe, you know, it's the, the most well-known secret that uh, all of the hosts on First Money In uh, are quite enthusiastic about cryptocurrency, quite enthusiastic about the promise that it holds. And within days <laughs> of us publishing our last episode, um, the price of kind of the anchor cryptocurrency Bitcoin went from 58,000. Um, I do think it actually hit 60,000, but I'll, I'll confirm on that. Um, dropped to 48,000 at present. And so that uh, was actually just the beginning. Following then, then in the week that followed, this, this week that just passed, there was a fairly strong correction 
in many stocks, most notably in tech stocks. So in my community, in my readership, um, and certainly I imagine uh, in, among my co-hosts, you know, I'm not looking too much at Ambev. I'm not looking too much at commodities. And so what was interesting was I actually felt that the tech stock sellage, uh, selling was greater than uh, what kind of the data shows. So here I have in front of me, says that while the tech-heavy Nasdaq composite, this is a report um, that came out uh, yesterday, uh, sorry, on Thursday, it says, while the tech-heavy Nasdaq composite uh, on Thursday entered correction territory, correction territory defined as a 10% drop from its recent high point, the Dow Jones Industrial actually is still just 3.4% below an all-time high set last month. The S&P, the large cap US benchmark, was off less than 5% down from its recent record. So looking at that data uh, and seeing the complexity there has been very interesting for me trying to get my arms around the situation. And then the last portion that I uh, would really uh, want to highlight was this idea of bond yields increasing, um, the, the threat and the specter of inflation, right? The, the, the specter of inflation always around the corner. And finally, um, the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell. Uh, before I close out <laughs> this uh, recap and, and setting up the stage, gentlemen, I just want to amuse you with a story. I remember in 2008, as a junior at Boston Latin School, alma mater, Summa Supreme, do what I think, um, debating whether Ben Bernanke would raise the rates, maintain the rates, or lower the rates. And it just felt like such a throwback to the situation. You know, I think, uh, I think anyone who's listened before knows um, we always say it's an exceptional situation. That's just what happens when things break, except it's not that exceptional when things break. And so was there really any mystery about whether Jerome Powell was going to increase the rate in my mind? Like, of course not. He was not going to increase the rate. Like, what can he do? All, that's the only tool he really has besides like buying back some distressed assets. <laughs> and so kind of this idea. And then really, even though bond yields raised to 1.6, right? He, Jerome Powell was like, yeah, there'll be some inflation once the economy comes back because more dollars are going to be spent. Uh, but no, we're not raising the rates. The market still continued to tank. It, there really was no situation where I feel like, you know, Jerome Powell is not uh, Paul, was Paul Volkner the dude, right? The guy who like um, in the 90s, uh, Fed, Fed Reserve, or Tread. Anyways, he, he, he is not, yeah, he's not Ben Bernanke. Um, and so like he can do whatever he can to try and calm the markets. But at this point, I do think it's an extension of the institutional distrust that like no matter what he says, like the market is going to do what the market's going to do. So with that intro, how have your portfolios been doing? How are you making sense of things? You know, uh, maybe even like the headline question is, do you think this is a hiccup or do you see this as the beginning of a, of a major correction and kind of a lot of assets and prices? Well, the past two weeks has been very painful. There's been a lot of red uh, blood in the streets. Haven't seen this much red since uh, the Red Wedding. For those of you Game of Thrones fans out there, um, it's been too uh, funny. Yeah, no, it's been <laughs> it's been a difficult time, uh, particularly for those of us personal investors that are probably overweight in our growth in tech stock uh, diversification, right? Um, or or not diversification, but just full focus on that. There are a couple of thoughts I have. Um, obviously, the macroeconomic impacts of why this happened are a little bit complex. And to be honest, maybe not the most interesting to go through on the podcast. But I think there's a couple of things that I, I would call out. One is I think over the long period of time, anytime you zoom out on the S&P 500 or any of your favorite stocks that dropped significantly this past week, uh, this will look like a blip. It looks like a blip. If you zoom it out over the last year, it will look like a blip if you zoom it out over the next five years. So as painful as it was, as I think I had three or four days in a row where my stock portfolio was down over 10% each day. Uh, so while very painful it was, um, this will look uh, like a momentary blip in the long uh, scheme of things. The other thing that I think is interesting, and I think is really important for investors to remember, myself included this past week, uh, was a good reminder. Asset prices have generally been a little inflated for a variety of reasons. And there's probably a healthy amount of correction in terms of some of the sky high valuations we're seeing, not only in tech stocks, but also in SPACs, you know, these special purpose uh, investment vehicles that don't even have named targets quite yet that are just, you know, piles of money that are searching for targets. So there probably is a little frothiness there. The reason, though, that those assets were inflating was all structurally planned. You know, the, the Fed continues to buy, as you mentioned, Muhan, distressed assets and bond rates uh, until recently have remained very, very low. So if you're an investor and you can't put your money into a de-risked asset 
like bonds and get one or 1.5% back every year, if it, since they've re remained so low, your only option was to put it into stocks primarily. And yes, cryptocurrency and NFTs if you were looking for something even more speculative, but primarily stocks. And so because of that, just the amount of inflows into the stock market, into ETFs like Kathy Wood's ARK uh, funds has been massive. And so part of this, I think, is less a correction and more a rotation. You have to remember, there are hedge funds that are every single day trying to find ways to beat the market. How do I beat the market today, this week, this month? For those of us long-term investors, that's not our game plan. So for me personally, I'm not rotating out of tech and growth stocks and putting a bunch of money into value stocks because I think the banks are going to do a little bit better short-term because interest rates are rising, or I think Costco or Walmart are going to do better short-term. I'm focused on a 5, 10, 20-year investing horizon, and that's what my focus will be. However, that does not mean that the majority of the money in the markets behave that way. So you just have to remember sometimes as markets go up and down, you're not only competing with people with more money, but with very different motivations and time horizons than you in terms of what their investing goals are. JL with the mic drop. I love that. You said so many uh, good points that I, I totally agree with. I think, look, I'm from my vantage point, I'm always long U.S. equities, no matter what. Uh, and I think about it from like four verticals. So your first vertical is index funds or ETFs, safe diversification. Then I go from my perspective into your blue chip tech folks. So your FANGs, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, et cetera. And, and then I'm thinking about emerging leaders from my side. So that could be your Shopify's and your squares. And then you have new IPOs, um, Airbnb, Datadog, DoorDash, Bumble, uh, one that I really like, Affirm with Matt Lefkin. And these things have all kind of sold off. And what I think to, to JL's point, it is a correction. Um, they've been very frothy. Folks have been trying to find alpha. And now that there's other place to find a little bit of alpha, it's a little rotation. But I am still super, super long um, any stocks that are kind of going on. And this is probably, to JL's point, a very small blip. But this is a good opportunity if you have uh, the risk appetite to kind of buy and start to build a position. I think the best time to invest is to, or the best type of way to invest could be dollar cost averaging. So you can buy low, you can buy high. It doesn't really matter because you're buying uh, dips and, and tops. So it all averages out. And I know we didn't talk as much about crypto, but I think uh, as Chamoff would say, it is smuck insurance to have just a small piece of your portfolio in, in crypto. I think one, it's a learning and education opportunity, but there might be an opportunity for you to have some type of outsized returns uh, that really can kind of boost your portfolio to the next level. And something else I was kind of thinking about from a long-term perspective is what happened during the last kind of stimulus check that was this size. And I was looking on CNBC and they said people who were earning between 35,000 and 75,000 annually, they traded stocks 90% more uh, post the stimulus check. So net net with everything selling off some 10, 15, some even 30%, especially in techs or tech stocks and the stimulus check coming and just what the future looks like of us opening up. I think it could be a really interesting buying opportunity. And um, as uh, most folks say on, on, on Reddit, HODL, H-O-D-L, uh, I will hold, I will buy, I will dollar cost average into. Um, this is not investment advice for me, but this is just what I plan to do. So I've got uh, a statement and then a question for both of you for, for kind of wrapping up this segment. And uh, on, on that note, too, this is, none of this is investment advice. This is purely for entertainment purposes and, and our reaction to the markets. So my uh, statement is from the great Warren Buffett, and I think it's a really important reminder in times like these. It is always about time in market, not timing the market. So a lot of times people think that they can outsmart the markets, they can sell at the tops, they can buy the dips. I think cost averaging, to Brandon's point, is the best approach. And really what you should be doing is looking for great companies that you believe in long term. I personally, from Brandon's kind of the way that you segmented the market there, um, that third category, the squares, the Shopify's, the really strong tech next generation leaders, that's really where my focus is. There's there's a lot of uh, you know product market fit, but there's a lot of growth there as well. So I think that is really interesting. A question for the three of us, though, to close the segment. 
Uh, again, not investment advice, but given that things are at really attractive levels, and I say attractive because they're the same price that they were maybe eight weeks ago or two two months ago, um, what are you what are you buying? Is there a stock? Is there a, a coin? Is there an ETF that you like right now that you're starting to spend some time with, or that maybe you purchased this past week? I guess I can start off. I, I kind of mentioned two of them. So my emerging leaders, Square, uh, I added to my position in Square even uh, before the announcement of of Tidal and Jay-Z joining the board. I think there's a lot of people who don't understand that Square is literally a competitor to not only Robinhood, but to every bank all in one. And, but it also has a connection to the cultural zeitgeist, especially even more now outside with with Jay-Z joining the board. And then they they can compete against uh, pretty much any of these like FinTech companies. Um, and then they can leverage understandings or learnings from, from Twitter as well. So I'm really pumped about what Jack is doing. Even Twitter now with uh, the super follows, they uh, are predicting that they're gonna double revenue by 2023. Good place to look out for. And Jack, just last night, I'm not sure if you guys saw this, he dropped a tweet where it looked like Twitter's getting into NFTs where you can actually buy and own tweets. Uh, he didn't put any, he just put a link. He did not put anything else out uh, to my knowledge and people are going crazy. So anything that Jack is putting his hands on, I'm excited about. And then from like an IPO perspective, Coinbase seems like it's going to Mars, Moon or Infinity, uh, TBD of, of how that works out. But I do like a firm. I didn't mention that. Like a firm has sold off almost 30 plus percent but you have an amazing entrepreneur in Max Levchin, who was part of the PayPal mafia, serial entrepreneur. And um, funny enough, I was looking at a firm, 30% of their revenues come from people financing Pelotons. So you can see that as a risk or an opportunity. It could be a risk if you think Peloton goes to shit, but it could be opportunity if you think about any new consumer product that needs to be financed will go to a firm over any other company, which means there's a lot of revenue expansion, which means that the stock can definitely go up. Uh, so those are mine. There we go. I just unmuted myself. Um, perfect. Mine's actually very quick. So I don't actually do that much uh, individual stock analysis and picking. I've definitely spent most of my time um, in the you know sub 10, 15 million dollar startup uh, rounds. I know a lot more about equity crowdfunding. Um, but with that, and I, I will say, I think that did also give me a little bit of a halo in uh, being somewhat blissfully uh, ignorant of some of the, the stock market kind of second degree orders from this past week. But I do think the, the stock that uh, is interesting to me, and I'm going to be looking into more kind of after probably our, our episode, is I'm excited that Tesla's back under the $600 valuation price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, do I think that Tesla is going to, Tesla and also by extension, Elon Musk, between the space rockets, between the cars, between the energy plays, do I think that the question is not if, but rather when? Yes, I do. I, I, and I'm not, I can't tell exactly what that vision looks like, but um, now that it's falling back more into an attractive range, I think it's uh, motivating me to go look more and understand like, okay, what are the KPIs that would get them to uh, over deliver on the promises and expectations of investors? Great. Do I think that those things are going to happen and I will live long enough to see them, et cetera, et cetera. I like both of your recommendations a lot. I'll add two quick ones. From a crypto standpoint, I'm increasingly bullish on Ethereum. I think Bitcoin will continue to go up in my 100k price prediction from the last pod, which short term has fallen flat on its face, but long term, stick with me, it's going to happen. I think Ethereum, though, grows at a higher rate. Um, so if Bitcoin goes from 50k to 100k in that same time period, I think you could see Ethereum go from 1500 to $5,000 per coin. Uh, so I'm very bullish on Ethereum, and maybe we'll cover that on a future pod. From a public market standpoint, uh, disclosure, I definitely do own a, a large percentage uh, a stake in this company, but it's called XL Fleet. And one of the things that's interesting to me is it was in that kind of growth tech sector anyways. It's a, it's a, an EV stock. It's a company that works with a lot of commercial fleets. So think about all of the uh, you know, UPS and uh, uh, FedEx delivery trucks and uh, Coca-Cola and PepsiCo delivery trucks. All of those fleets are becoming electrified and there needs to be a hybrid solution. XL Fleet kind of uh, closes the gap there. 
But what's really interesting is a GameStop-type movement has hit XL Fleet, where two hedge funds have shorted it more than 70% uh, in the past two weeks. So it's down all the way to around 10 bucks now a share, and it has a 92% short, short float. So it's one of those things where short-term, it's been very, very painful for XL Fleet owners, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if this turns into... Uh, in a positive sense, a GameStop type movement where you see a pop in the stock price. Not There's some real business value there too, but something to keep an eye on for, for those of you that are a little bit more speculative and uh, okay with some risk. Yo, I, I like that. You you definitely piqued my interest with XL Fleet. I'm taking a look at them. Mm-hmm. Muhan, I didn't mention that, but I definitely did grab some extra Tesla shares. I mean, mm-hmm. driving it every day, seeing it go so low. I mean, it's hit almost 900. So you think at least it can go back there, if not higher. Uh, so there's a lot of um, there's a lot of upside if you're looking at it from that perspective. Shall we move to the quick hits, guys? Yes, sir. Uh, quick hits. I can take, I can take the first one. Um, so what does LeBron, Lizzie Lohan, Grimes, and Logan Paul all have in common? They're all selling NFTs. Well, actually, LeBron was a dunk that was sold, but all these folks are selling NFTs for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. Folks, you have to at least do your own due diligence and education, watch a few YouTube videos just to understand what NFTs are. Two other call-outs. One, Banksy, the the very famous uh, creator and, and artist. Someone bought one of his paintings, burnt it, and then turn it into an NFT, which was like the first time anyone has ever done that. Taking something physical and making it no longer physical, but only digital. So that could be happening quite a bit in the future. And then if you want to just follow someone on Instagram or on one of these uh, NFT sites, a guy named Beeple, B-E-E-P-L-E, he's like the, the cause of nfts and he just sold one for six million dollars uh over the last like two or three weeks and he was also on i think it was bloomberg or cnbc and he had uh one of those staples buttons (laughs) while he was on live tv he was pressing them so this guy he's just really fucking around and having a good time but also really putting some good money into his pocket so definitely just check out nfts yeah i'll be brief here but uh Big fan of NFTs. The one I'm paying attention to is NBA Top Shot, digital trading cards on the blockchain. Um, I've, I've picked up some uh, both through the marketplace and uh, through their packs, uh, but I'm really interested in NFTs and the music uh, licensing industry. So I'll be paying attention to any innovation in that space too. Glorious. Glorious, glorious. I'm going to bring us to our next quick hit, uh, vaccine passports. So um, both of you guys were... Uh, very cool and in introducing me to this time article that shows that Europe is uh, experimenting with vaccine passports. Now I will say this somewhat of their of their of their headline was a little bit clickbait because kind of reading more into the article, I saw that frankly, the United States apparently won't have the same shortage of vaccines that Europe will have. And so in Europe there is actually more scarcity, there's more rationing of it. But it does introduce some really interesting Correlator, corollaries as to, hey, what does it look like for Europe to have to ration vaccines to, you know, get back, frankly, those sweet, sweet tourism dollars? I do also think that the United States economy is more balanced, right? It's less of a legacy. Um, sorry, Europe, I love you, Europe. <laughs> but but yeah, the, the, the fundamentals of the business are looking different there. So I'm curious to get all of your takes on um, how kind of the ethics of individual liberty and equality then play with the scarcity of vaccines and finally with economic recovery i'm really torn on this one to be honest i think businesses will uh have the right to refuse service to those that have not been vaccinated i think it's going to go through the u.s court system i wouldn't be surprised there was a famous uh federal case that worked its way all the way to the supreme court for a baker in colorado i believe who refused service to a same um same sex couple and the Supreme Court said that uh, he did have the right to refuse service. Um, and so I think if that's your stance, you're you're going to see businesses refuse service to those who haven't been vaccinated. And I think short term, it makes sense. If you're if you're a sports arena or entertainment or a concert venue or an airline, you certainly want to de-risk uh, for everyone involved, your staff included. And so I, I think that makes sense. 
Longer term, though, I am suspect about this travel-oriented, you know, vac- uh, vaccine passport. I think it only makes sense, Muhan, potentially in the context of if your population is not heavily vaccinated because of a vaccine, a vaccine shortfall, not because of anti-vax sentiment. Meaning, if you are um, picking a random country, Germany or Poland, mm. and you don't have enough vaccines to protect your population. I could understand only wanting those who have been vaccinated uh, to come to your country from a public health uh, policy standpoint. But if 99% of folks in your country have been vaccinated or the overwhelming majority, um, you know, it's almost to the point where folks that travel that haven't been vaccinated, it's more of a personal risk and liability to them than it is to any of your citizens. And so, again, not a public policy health expert or epidemiologist here. But I do think that it's a slippery slope in terms of governments, um, you know, getting into this vaccine passport game, Mm. Uh, whether they do it or not. I think it's best to be short term, no longer than, you know, the next year, uh, maybe two years. Yep. And I know we have one more topic here. It seems like there is a Japanese billionaire that is looking to go to the moon. Uh, JL, I assume since we're going to the moon, uh, this one's for you. (laughs) (laughs) So SpaceX is, uh, partnered with a Japanese billionaire who has essentially for an undisclosed amount, but a very, very large sum has purchased eight seats, I believe on the first commercial space flight that SpaceX will be taking, uh, for a lunar expedition. So they'll be slingshotting around, uh, earth going to the moon and back, um, Timing is, is a bit TBD. Uh, time frame keeps getting pushed back. I believe it'll be 2023 at this point. Uh, but the Japanese billionaire has uh, is not just inviting his friends and family. He is opening up it up to the world. So applications are live. If you search for this on Google, you too could potentially go to the moon in the next few years. It's kind of crazy that we're having this conversation in 2021, given everything else that's going on from a pandemic standpoint. But mm-hmm. uh, if you want to leave Earth, <laughs> for, for, a little, for a little bit uh check out your potential lunar expedition earth exit um jonathan i just wanted to, to to add to that so i poked around the website i think it's called the dear earth project and i'm so curious so if i'm reading this correctly to join the space flight you do have to sign away the rights to some piece of artwork or some creative project that you do afterwards so what type of musical interpretive dance you know creative memoir are you writing after you go to the moon I probably won't get selected. I definitely will will apply because you never know. But I feel like a lunar rap could be, uh, you know, kind of the approach. Oh uh, not saying it would be a good one, but uh, I feel like on that uh, journey around the moon, you'd be inspired to write some lyrics. So maybe it turns more poem-esque than, than rap because I'm not good with the beats. But I think that would be something fun to explore. We could team up together and work on it. <laughs> oh my gosh, amazing. Moon rap buddies, let's go. Shall we transition to our last segment? Winners, losers, politics, business, and et cetera. Winners, losers, and content. Yeah? Let's do it. All right, cool. Gentlemen, I'll, uh, I hope you don't mind if I, I'll kick it off. Uh, for me, winner, Dr. Seuss Books. You're killing it, guys. You're taking the right stance. You're making more money. I mean, you're killing it. Losers. Mark I love it. And Jerome Powell. I'm so sorry, Jerome Powell. But again, like over a decade ago, we saw what happened. You're, you're just going to be losing no matter what you do. You have dual mandates to stabilize prices and to grow the economy. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very compromised position. Um, and lastly, to end my silliness on the content side, um, I really want to shout out, there's a venture capitalist here in the city. His name's He Tian. And he put together this Medium article that really uh, documented and made kind of the rise in Asian American violence very real to me. And I say this, and I'm very embarrassed, to be honest. Uh, I was woefully unaware. It's not really covered in too many of the news uh, mediates that I followed. But really reading He Tian's uh, Medium piece, we'll link to it in the show notes afterwards, then brought me on this long, long rabbit hole. Guys, I, I apologize. I lost maybe like 45 minutes watching this ABC News segment that then covered the rise in the violence. And, um, you know, it just really hit home. And uh, I want to take a moment, you know, I know that my platform is modest, it's larger with the two of you. Um, but uh, to say that this shouldn't be happening to any community, and it's uh, all of our parts to uh, surface this and make sure that we build a safer community for all. So that's my uh, winners, losers and content. Well said, Muhan, and obviously support everything you said there. I think it's abhorrent what is happening and uh, hope there's an end to that soon. 
I think on my side, winners, losers, content of the week, winners would be everyone who is getting a stimulus check. Um, and my ask would be, I hope you put it towards good use. And if you're going to spend it, spend it towards a local business or an industry that was particularly hard hit. You know, obviously it, it would be fun to, from an entertainment standpoint, see stocks go up again. And, and uh, you know, but if, if you really have the ability to spend it, uh, maybe spend it in an area with someone who's harder hit than you are. My losers for the week uh, goes a little international. So on the other side of the, the world, um, with the Myanmar government, uh, I'm not sure of, of those of you that have been following, but last month there was a military coup where the Myanmar military took over for the democratically elected government of Myanmar. And since then, as you can imagine, it's been uh, turmoil. Uh, you know, protesters have been killed, uh, kind of police order, army control of the streets. Uh, so the world is taking notice, but there's not enough action being done. Uh, and I think more should be done. But losers of the week, definitely the Myanmar government for their uh, unacceptable actions. And uh, lastly, content of the week. You know, obviously we run the pod here, uh, but we're able to give shout outs to other pods that we like and respect too. And uh, I've got to say, episode 24 of the All In podcast was fantastic. It was one of my favorites. They talk about the macroeconomic overview of the stimulus, Biden's first 60 days in office. Um, and Shamath has lost $2 billion so far in the market crash uh, of last week. So uh, it's funny. It's educational. It's real. So check out episode 24 of the All In Podcast. I'm not worried about Shamath. He'll be fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of winners loser content on my side i think winners are the hip-hop community and also the di diversity community when you have folks like nas jay-z and snoop dogg as clear examples of not only being standout stars in their uh, main profession but also in the business world i think it impacts super positively the folks who look up to them to think that they can do things outside of just being a talented athlete or a talented wordsmith so really uh, appreciate them being examples a loser perspective i think folks who are still on the fence about just blockchain and crypto space you don't have to invest in ethereum you don't have to invest in bitcoin you don't have to invest in an nft but if you're not educating yourself and trying to get some type of experience to the space you may be left out of the next industrial revolution and, and if you are you're not paying attention to the tech revolution you're definitely going to be out of that one so um folks just read up on it that's all i'm saying highly recommend it and from a content perspective i've been seeing very uh torn reviews coming to america with eddie murphy on amazon i watched it last night with my mom i thought it was fine but so many people are saying that it would have been better on netflix this that another who cares I'm glad that I saw it. Bad Boys 3 wasn't as good as Bad Boys 2 or 1, but I'm glad that Will Smith and Martin Lawrence did it. Same thing with Coming to America 2. I'm glad that Eddie pulled all these folks in to do this one. Um, let us know what you think about uh, Coming to America. Touche. That's on the watch list, so I'm glad you recommended that because now it'll be a reminder for me to actually watch that one too. So. Well, gentlemen, this uh, this concludes episode two of the, the First Money In podcast. We want to thank everyone who listened and continues to support the pod. Obviously, uh, we strive to come together every other week and talk about things of interest uh, to us and to you about startups, finance, politics, and the business world around us. So if you ever have any recommendations, topics you want us to discuss in a future pod, again, feel free to reach out on firstmoneyin.co or search First Money In podcast on the Substack. Make sure you give us a follow on Spotify. And with that, from Muhan Jung, a.k.a. The Operative, Brandon Smooth Jazz Bryant, and Jonathan Lacoste, a.k.a. The Spaceman, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Peace. Peace.